I've done a couple tours of duty in California. In fact, we just moved here uh, almost exactly a year ago from our second tour of duty in California, uh, the Bible Belt of California, the Bay Area. Um, Right. Um, uh, my first tour of duty, we were actually in Southern California, um, and I lived in Los Angeles. I remember not long after living in Los Angeles, I had to hop on a plane and fly back east for something, maybe visit family or speak at something, whatever. I just remember, though, on the return trip, as we're making our descent, looking out the window, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this flying into Los Angeles, and just being aghast at the thick cloud of haze that had enveloped the city in the San Gabriel Valley. Now, we affectionately refer to that as smog. I remember just being taken aback and just going, man, I, I live in that? I ingest that? Like, like th that stuff is just a part of my normal, everyday existence? I, I didn't necessarily see it or feel it or experience it to, to that depth when I was on the ground, but there's just something being in a plane and just kind of looking out and seeing the extent of that smog and how pervasive it is. Well, what were we to do living in Los Angeles? What were we to do living in the state of California? On the one hand, um, you know, did the government get together in Sacramento and say, look, this is bad. Let's just kind of all separate. Let's just get away from this. Let's just go the route of separation. No, that's not tenable. On the other hand, did they say, okay, this is kind of our reality, so let's just kind of assimilate into it and do nothing to try to cure it? No, they didn't do that. That's irresponsible. And so the state of California said, well, let's not separate. Let's not assimilate. Assimilate, let's try to transform it. Did you know that since 1996, California has the cleanest gas in the world? And that's not by accident. The reason why it costs so money to fill up in California is because of the higher standard of gas. It's as if the people uh, in the government there said, look, if, if we're going to make a difference, our gas has to be different. It's got to be at a higher standard. It, it, it's got to be such that we're able to transform our culture. This morning, I want to talk to you about worldliness. If I could describe worldliness, I would describe it as moral smog. Moral smog. Eugene Peterson, a great pastor who's since gone home to be with the Lord. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that worldliness is not so much a set of practices. It's not so much a set of things that we do or don't do. It is an attitude, he says. It's a mood. It's an atmosphere that we ingest. Some of you are like, okay, I, I really need you, Brian, to, to kind of give me a real clear definition of worldliness. What is it? Well, I would say at the epicenter of worldliness is sin. And when we talk about sin, we're talking about living autonomously. We're talking about a sense of independence. We get this from Genesis 3. Sin enters into the world because Adam and Eve said instead of leaning into God for purpose, meaning, fulfillment in life, we're going to act autonomously from God and do this on our own. So now when we talk about worldliness, if you get nothing else I say, you need to get this. Worldliness is autonomy gone viral. Worldliness is autonomy gone viral. As we've learned in this series, the idea of worldliness isn't so much a geographical place. That's not predominantly how it's used in the Bible. Instead, it's used of a system to speak of people who are acting independently of God. Worldliness is autonomy gone viral. A, a case in point of this is this is just kind of woven throughout scripture. If you want to see this idea of autonomy gone viral, just read the book of Judges. 
In the book of Judges, they're in this vicious cycle of, of kind of being in sin and then going into bondage, and then God raises up a judge, a deliverer, who sets them free only for them to do it again and again and again. It is autonomous. It is autonomy gone viral. And in fact, the book of Judges ends with this verse, this verse that I think sums up 2021. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the spirit of worldliness, autonomy gone viral. I am not going to lean into God. I'm not going to conform to his way of doing things. I'm going to do it my way, and this spirit is still pervasive. Let me just give you a couple examples, examples you already know. If you want to look at autonomy gone viral, look at the pro-choice movement where a woman says, this is my body, I get to decide what I do with what's inside of my body. In, fa in fact, a daunting article was written not too long ago. Uh, it made its way in the Times. The title of the article is, Yes, Abortion is Killing, But It's the Lesser Evil. It's written by Antonia Sr. She says this, My daughter was formed at conception. Any other conclusion is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about the action of taking life. Yes, she says, this is a pro-choice woman. Abortion is killing, but it's the lesser evil. You must be prepared to kill the chilling words. Millions upon millions of babies have died because of autonomy gone viral. Let me just say parenthetically in a crowd this size, Statistics say that one or several of you have gone the route of abortion. I want you to understand God's grace is sufficient. There's nothing we could ever do to make him turn his back on us. If you also want to see an example of autonomy gone viral, look at our friends in the LGBTQ plus community. Instead of them catching a biblical vision for what sexuality is, the idea here is, no, no, if I feel it, I'm, I'm going to do it, whatever that may be. It's autonomy that has gone viral. The, the way that we're spending and the rising amounts of consumer debt is this idea of autonomy that, that's gone viral. I, I see it. I want it. It's going to make me happy if I have to go into debt to get it, then that's what I want to do. It, it, it's all about me. One more example I mean, just the sensitivity most of us have when someone challenges us on something we've done, when they seek to use biblical terms, uh, rebuke or admonish us or correct us, the way we just naturally bristle at that shows this spirit of autonomy. It's all in us. All of us struggle daily with the moral smog of, worldly, of worldliness. We've ingested it. It's living inside of us. And Daniel 3 is going to help us. It's going to help us by helping us to see exactly what worldliness is. By the way, I don't see a clock. Typically, there's a timer on me, so I'm, t I'm just saying y'all just want me to just be spirit-led this morning. Okay. Um, so here's the deal. The idea here is, is that Daniel 3 is going to describe to us what worldliness is, and then it's going to give us some very practical things as it relates to how we can resist it. L let me click off three descriptions from our text on worldliness to really give us clarity into it. 
You need to understand that when we get to Daniel, this is a biblical period in redemptive history known as the Babylonian exile. Why are the people of God in exile in Babylon? Answer, worldliness. For centuries, instead of acknowledging the one true God, they kept drifting and drifting and drifting and worshiping the gods of those in secular society. They had turned their back on God uh, instead of acknowledging God. And God in his grace kept sending a prophet after prophet after prophet for centuries. And finally God says, you want to act autonomously? Here you have it. I'm going to send you to Babylon. Jeremiah 29 says, I've actually called you to Babylon. I've got plans for you. I haven't given up on you. And now what do we have in Daniel 3 during this period of of the Babylonian exile where the people of God have been sent because of their worldliness as they worshiped other gods? We now have a stunning example. Three individuals from the covenant people of God say we are not going to go the way of worldliness. We're going to stand faithful and true to the one true God. Let me just stop right here and give you a piece of mail, send you a text message, come into your house, put my feet up on the coffee table, and encourage you. All of us know what it's like to take tours of duty in worldliness. And yet the fact that we're still living today is a testimony to God's grace. He has not given up on us, we can go from faithlessness to faithfulness and stand strong just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In our text, thank you for saying amen, that encourages me. In our text, when it comes to this idea of worldliness, we see three things. Number one, right out the gate, we see that at the epicenter of worldliness is idolatry. Idolatry. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. He again calls the all-staff outing on the plain of Dura, and he's constructed an image. Now, this image isn't for them to just gawk at and marvel at as if it's the Statue of Liberty. No, he actually wants them to bow down and worship this image, the idea of idolatry. Now, I know what you're thinking. You know, some of you are like, well, you know, Brian, thanks a lot, but this is a real disconnect to where we are in our culture. I mean, I'm a college student. Uh, uh, When I walk across the quad, yeah, I see images. There's statues of famous athletes at my university and historians and professors and accomplished people, but I'm not being asked to bow down with them. So obviously, Daniel chapter 3 doesn't apply to us. You might want to think again. An idol is anything, even a good thing, that's become an ultimate thing. Idols are those things that we turn to outside of God to find our own sense of purpose and meaning and value and significance. Those are idols. Idols can be incredibly deceitful because, again, they're good things turned into ultimate things. It's interesting. There was a study done some years ago that says the two professions with the highest concentration of depression are the medical profession and the financial profession. It's interesting. Highest rates of depression are in these highest paying fields. The author of that study conjectured that the reason for this is that certainly not most, certainly not all, but many people got into that field not out of a a profound sense of calling, not out of a profound sense of purpose, but but think a minute, if I get that field, I get that money, that money's going to give me satisfaction only to discover it doesn't scratch them where their soul itches. And so the depression among some comes in because they took a good thing and looked to it to be an ultimate thing. 
Some of you all, maybe, maybe you're teenagers or as parents of teenagers, we, we, we see this via technology and social media. You know, when I was in high school, of course, everybody wanted to be popular. We wanted to be well-known. We wanted to be liked. The difference between back then and now is that now you can actually quantify it by how many likes I have, by how many views I get, by how many followers I have. And isn't it interesting that we're seeing a rise among our young people in documented cases of anxiety and suicide and depression. Some of that is we're looking for fulfillment outside of God. Idols are anything, even good things that become ultimate things. I, I got a kid in AAU and I see this all the time with parents who put on their kids the crushing weight of deity and they go to the games and they, they act insane and I want to tell them, calm down, your kid ain't going pro and I can say that with confidence because they've got your genes. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that even our kids, which are good things, oftentimes we make them idols by making them ultimate things. What's your image of gold? What is it that when the band strikes up, your knees get weak? Worldliness is idolatry. But secondly, worldliness is subtle. Now, the big question, if you study this text and you read commentators, is exactly what is this image? I mean, all scholars, they banter back and forth trying to figure out what is this image? I believe that that in order to answer that question, you got to go back to Daniel chapter 2. We've been studying Daniel chapter 2. What happens? They construct this image, and here is Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream, rather, of this image, and this image is made up of various uh, materials, and, and it has a head of gold, and the interpretation of the dream says that this head of gold is Babylon. Now, one chapter later, Nebuchadnezzar constructs an image all of gold, which means the image represents Babylon, and the fact that it's all of gold, it is Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying it, my empire will last forever. So that him asking them to bow down to this image is asking them to worship not just the idol, but the idol of nationalism. Let me just park right here for a quick second in metal. I love America. I really do. In fact, I had a I had a white colleague ask me some years ago, we worked together at a church, he says, Brian, if you could live at any uh, kind of uh, season in America, when would it be? I said, as a black man? Now, like 1753, 1853, and 1953 were not good years for me, okay? So I want you to understand, we've made a lot of progress. Look, we've got a lot of, 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 of ways to go, but, but I'm pleased with the trajectory here. I love America, faults and all. And I believe if you live here, you should love our country. But loving our country is different than idolizing our country. What we're dealing with here is not just an idol, but it's the idol of nationalism. How do I know, Brian, that I've crossed the line so subtly from loving my country to worshiping my country? Well, the same way you know that anything else is, is an idol in your life, it disproportionately devastates you. And for an example, if your joy rises and falls on whether or not a 19-year-old catches a football, and if they drop it, your day and family is ruined, that might be an idol. 
And in the same way, when we talk about the idol of nationalism, if you're more devastated over the fact that your candidate didn't win or that there was a piece of legislation that passed, then you are with the reality that people are going to hell without hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. That might be your idol. If you've joined a political party but have not joined the church, that could be your idol. If you're more of an evangelist for a political party than you are for the kingdom of God, that could be your idol. Idols and worldliness is subtle. But thirdly and finally, worldliness has an agenda. It has an agenda. We saw this in chapter 1, right, with the change of names and, you know, him trying to change their education and him trying to change their diet. Here, it's not so subtle. He's very clear. If you do not worship this God, I have an agenda. I'm going to kill your life, and I want to kill your faith. Worldliness has an agenda. I don't know if you saw the story. True story came out in October 2017. It was... Uh, it was an article that was written about a, a woman who had bought a pet python that she loved sleeping in the bed with. True story. You ought to Google it. Every night she slept in the bed with this python. There's pictures of her sleeping with this python. And, well, she got concerned one day uh, because the python hadn't eaten in about a week. So she decided, gift of discernment, I should probably take this python to the vet, see what's wrong. Vet says, what's up? Well, my python hadn't eaten for a week. Uh, the vet looked alarmed. Vet says, let me ask you, uh, since this python hasn't been eating, has it been sleeping in a circular fashion around you, or has it stretched out from end to end on top of you? She says, it's weird. When we first started sleeping in the bed together, it was in a circular fashion, but here of late, it stretched out uh, from my head to my feet. The vet got really alarmed. He said, ma'am, the reason why this python is stretching out across you is it's sizing you up. The reason why it's been starving itself is because you are next on the menu. <laughs> what started out as cute and cuddly was about to turn deadly. Listen, the reason why so many of us give in to worldliness at different points in our life is because it is appealing. Worldliness is cute and cuddly. If sin didn't look fun, we would not engage in it. And yet the Bible sends a very different message about worldliness. Like this python, it's nothing to be played with. John said it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, John writes, is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He is not saying, don't take care of... Uh, of Durham. He's not saying don't invest in our city. He's not saying you, you should quit your job in the marketplace and go into full-time vocational ministry. He's talking about this system of moral smog, of autonomy gone viral. John says it may look cute and cuddly, but its impact is deadly. Look, some of you are here and you know this firsthand. You've battled, or maybe you're battling addiction. You turn to the alcohol, you turn to the substance to, to medicate, to deal with the pain. And what started out as something cute and cuddly has been like a bear, and it's jumped on your back, and it's been so difficult to get rid of. 
Others of you know the financial uh, devastation of looking to money and things and possessions to give you joy and fulfillment. And maybe you've had to file for bankruptcy or you're in debt to uh, to your eyeballs because what looked cute and cuddly is now devastating you. On and on we can go. Worldliness has an agenda. It wants to whittle away your faith and dependence in the one true God. As we round third and head for home, listen, all of us deal with it. Not all of you, all of us deal with worldliness. So, Brian, how can I successfully navigate it? Our text gives us three things. It's interesting to me that when these men stand, they don't stand alone, they stand together. I actually believe this was pre-planned. I think when word seeped out and they heard what was being asked of them, that this image was going to be constructed and they were asked to commit the sin of idolatry and if not upon peril of their life, I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got together and said, what's our game plan? So please notice, they don't stand in isolation. They stand in community. I want you to hear me. If you and I are going to make a stand in the the midst of this world and its gravitational pull towards idolatry to try to take us away from dependence on God and live autonomously, community cannot be an elective. It must be core curriculum. Here's an interesting study. Study the life of David and Samson, and you'll see a lot of similarities. Both were leaders. Both were, were, were alpha males. Both were stone-cold killers. I mean, Samson took the jawbone of a donkey and killed many people with it, and David would cut your head off and then go play the harp. Both had a weakness for women. Both fell with women. One floundered in his failure. The other emerged from it and flourished, leaving a legacy of being a man after God's own heart. What's the difference? Let me ask you something. This is part of audience participation. Tell me, who are Samson's closest male friends? I'll wait. Now, what about David? Every time we see David, he's hanging out in some cave with 400 of his closest male friends. Him and Jonathan have a legendary friendship. When, when he does fail, he, he's confronted by a man named Nathan, and he receives the truth of it and ends up repenting. The difference is community. Being around people is not having community. I, I think Christocentric community is, is both an embrace and a kick in the pants, It's being around people who see you as is and accept you as is and love you as is. But at the same time, they'll call you out and they'll they'll challenge you. I've been graced by God to experience this. I do an annual treat with some uh, men in my life. We're on the phone with each other uh, every single week. In fact, uh, not too long ago, we found out that one of our guys who, you know, we're supposed to be close with, we found out that he's getting divorced. By the way, just because you're an accountability group doesn't really mean you're being accountable. Authenticity is what you make it. Vulnerability is what you make it. And so we, we got on a plane and went to go see him. We're like, man, what's up? Community. 
Who knows you? Who really knows you? Who are you being vulnerable with? Who challenges you? We need community. Secondly, not only do they have community, but they have something called conviction. They have something called conviction. If we're going to stand against the gravitational pull of the world, we have to have community. But secondly, we have to have conviction. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. He brings them in. He's received word that they didn't bow. He says, look, guys, closed-door session. I'm going to give you one more shot to get it right. And if you don't bow, what God is there who will deliver you? Notice with me, if you will, how they respond in Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their convictions were not based on what they thought God will or will not do. Their convictions were not circumstantial. They were tethered to the timeless truth of the word of God. Fixed or firm beliefs has nothing to do with whether or not I'll keep my job or I'll get the promotion or whether or not this guy will like me or not. It is a fixed or firm belief that was even predetermined before they got there. In fact, you read the Bible you read world history, people of great faith were people of great and deep convictions. I, I love Joshua. Joshua, the patriarch, towards the end of his life, he says, choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I, I love Job. Job says, listen, I, I want you to understand in the midst of suffering and boils and going to a funeral with 10 caskets and each casket holding one of his kids. And he says, I want you to know, I know my Redeemer lives. Or take Peter and John. Here's Peter and John in Acts. They're told, look, we need you to stop talking about Jesus or we're going to make you suffer. They says, look, we cannot shut up about our Christ. Or take Paul. They come to Paul one day and say, Paul, we're going to kill you. Paul says, that's cool. To die is gain. They come back to Paul and say, Paul, we're not going to kill you. We're going to let you live. Paul says, that's cool too. To live is Christ. They come back to Paul and say, Paul, we're, we're, we're not going to kill you. We're not going to, we're not going to let you live. We're going to make you suffer. Paul says, that's cool too. Because the sufferings of this life has nothing on the glory which is to come. Man of conviction. Think of our brothers and sisters in China today. Suffering full of conviction. And oh, we live in the Disneyland of the world. And we need more brothers and sisters with fixed and firm beliefs. Men and women of God of conviction. As we close, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like this. Says he got so angry that his face was enraged. And he ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter. Now, this is crazy, Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to make them suffer, don't turn up the heat. Turn them down and crockpot them bad boys. <laughs> he turns it up seven times hotter to the point where those who threw him in, they were burned and they died. And here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's looking, and he says, whoa, didn't we throw in three? I see a fourth. And he has the appearance of one of the gods, again, a pre-incarnate, 
appearance of Jesus Christ, a, theocra- a, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And it says that they were unbound. One translation says they were loosed. Listen, you don't need to get delivered to experience freedom. You can experience freedom right in the middle of the fire. Not only that, they're experiencing fellowship with Jesus Christ. Christ is with them in the middle of the suffering. And we understand that when you go to work, Christ is with you. I want you to understand that when you're out there and you're, you're, you're living in the frat house and trying to shine as a light in this very dark place, Christ is with you. I want you to understand that in that relationship, Christ is with you. We never go it alone. Christ is with us. One of the stunning examples of that as we close is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of us have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that legendary, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. It's the 1930s. Bonhoeffer has just left Harlem, New York, and he's gone back to Germany because the Nazi regime in the 30s is gaining steam. The Nazi regime has overtaken the state church there of Germany, and they have they put a ban on preaching out of the Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because the people of God were Jews, and we all know how the Nazis felt about Jews. However, there were a group of pastors who, in the midst of this worldliness, said, we're going to be faithful, and they started a movement called the Confessing Church. They had a need to train leaders, future leaders who would be faithful, modern day back then, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego against the pressures of this world. And that's where Bonhoeffer comes in. He starts this makeshift seminary in Finkenwald. And he's training them secretly. One day, a good friend of his named Wilhelm showed up and Dietrich and Wilhelm decided to take a hike through the woods. Off in the distance, they see a a Nazi squadron who are training. They're on one side and parallel to them off in the distance is this makeshift seminary of of young leaders who are being trained and discipled in the faith to stand and resist that. It's at this moment where Bonhoeffer says to his friend Wilhelm, pointing to the seminary, he says, this must be stronger than that. And the immediate future didn't look like it. The Nazi regime grew stronger and stronger, and they looked like they were going to eradicate the Christians. But now, almost 100 years later, where are the Nazis? Almost 100 years later, where's the people of God? This was stronger than that. Friends, I want you to understand, there are many times it appears... That is stronger than this. But I've read the end of the story and we win. What we need are faithful people, not people who separate and avoid the world, not people who assimilate into the world, but people who transform the world because they understand greater is he who is in me than he that is in the world. Father, I pray for your people. I bless your people. When the alarm clock goes off tomorrow, the pressures that await many of us as they will go into situations and scenarios, Lord God, where their faith will be tested. Some are getting ready to go on that business trip for the first time in a long time, and they know what awaits them and the temptations towards worldliness that are there. 
others, could be college students, whatever it may be, Father, God, would you gift them with strong community, Shadrachs, Meshachs, and Abednegoes they can lock arms with. God, would you deepen their convictions, not in a self-righteous, legalistic way. And then, Father God, would you overwhelm them with your presence. God, when we do these things, we, we understand that we will be positioned to transform our world for the glory of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.